Do you just love this podcast so much and wish you could find a way to monetarily support us? Well, guess what? Much like NPR, we thrive on support from viewers like you. So if you love this podcast and you want to become a contributor, all you have to do is go to anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Click the support button and choose the amount that you want to contribute each month to our podcast. This helps keep our podcast going, and it keeps the phenomenal content that you have come to know and love flowing. So yeah, what are you waiting for? Sign up today. As always, thank you so much for being a listener. We appreciate you. We see you. And we hope you enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club, where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we're doing things a little bit differently. Instead of chatting about a movie, we have an interview with a wonderful guest, 90s sketch comedy expert and author of the brand new book, We're Not Worthy, Jason Klom. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me. Today on the show, I have a very special guest. I have Jason Klom on the show. And instead of talking about a classic movie this week, we're actually talking about his book, his brand new book that you should go out and buy called We're Not Worthy. That's basically like an exploration of 90s sketch comedy and not just on television, but it covers the groundlings. It covers like all of these aspects of 90s sketch comedy and how that was like really a special time in the comedy world. Um, So, Jason, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. You're a delight. (laughs) So are you. Um, (laughs) So you wrote this book. We're not worthy for our listeners so they can have a little bit of background about it. Can you tell me about your book and then maybe give us like a brief history of sketch comedy? I can certainly try. Um, Not as well as uh, Keegan-Michael Key could do if he were here right now promoting his book on sketch comedy. It's very funny because I did not know he was writing his book at the same time. His seems to be detailed, like going back to the beginning, beginning, beginning. So at least I picked TV and at least I picked the 90s for the most part. Although if you read the book, anybody's read the book, the first chapter is basically the history of TV sketch before the 90s. Um, anyway, that's it. It's the history of 90s TV sketch comedy because that's what I grew up with and I love it. And Not all of it, but I love most of it. And I'm a sketch comedian and this is the thing that made me want to do comedy the most. Um, and you were the only person to mention in any of these interviews really that, yes, I talk about the Groundlings, Second City and all that stuff because I realized at some point some of these things don't make sense unless you actually know where the people came from. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the history that I understand best of sketch comedy is, yeah, going back to the 40s when, like, your show of shows or the Admiral Broadway Review started, and it all was basically, let's turn vaudeville into something people can see in their living rooms. It'll be cheaper. It'll be something to keep them around while we try and sell more TVs. And it worked, and it became, it made Sid Caesar a household name, and then eventually it sort of, like, evolved into, like, hippie culture became a thing in sketch, and then all of a sudden in the 60s, yeah, sketch becomes a thing where you can actually start to make like or try and make social change or political change. And then at some point that's taken for granted. And by the but by the time the 90s comes around in living color does the same thing, but they do it with people of color. And all of a sudden, the political aspect of sketch becomes more real again. And I explore none of that in the book. I'm just realizing that as I'm saying this out loud to you. But um, I think that's why the 90s is important. It's the last big sketch decade. 
Although I do think you did cover it with the In Living Color chapter. I think you touched on that. I got okay. that vibe. I understood. Okay, good. Um, So for people at home, for our listeners, can you describe like what exactly is sketch comedy? Like what are the parameters and rules? How is it different from other forms of comedy? Okay. Well, sketch comedy is a self typically typically a self-contained scene it is an entire and his entire story being told within usually usually a single scene um or at the very least a condensed a condensed short period of time usually one to ten minutes i guess is what i would say um i want to say one scene but you know like mr show could do like 10 little scenelets within like a five minute sketch and like it was still obviously a sketch but you're telling a story in a very short amount of time it's usually got some sort of, I don't know, it usually has a social or political point to it. It's usually social. It's usually like, oh, what's a weird peccadillo? What's a weird thing that one person might do that we could all recognize in ourselves? You should watch. I think you should leave. If you want to talk about the weirdest, most obscure peccadillos and weird things that we do that the people who are hired by Tim Robinson to write, uh, it, it's the strangest thing in the world. But it's a, it's a short story. It's basically the filmed version or the tv version of a short story and therefore the usually the the uh, the stakes are heightened the characters are heightened the performances are heightened usually um and that is probably the worst explanation of what a sketch is in the history of, of no it's not podcasting. i think okay. that you answered the question okay we all understand what it is now and now we can move forward because we get it now because i didn't do it in the book i just took for granted that people would know what a sketch was but to be fair I'm glad you asked. Well, and also, I think people that are going to buy your book mm-hmm. now, they're like, you know, that's this is what they're interested in. So my viewers mm-hmm. at home, my viewers, I always say viewers. And then someone was like, Sarah, <laughs> no one's watching you. My <laughs> listeners <laughs> are classic movie fans. So I don't know. I'm not taking for granted what they might know or not know. That's fair. That's fair. I will say if you like classic movies and I, I have seen that you have gone back like quite far in, yeah. in the canon of great films. Um, most of those people who did those early classic films did plenty of short films, which are effectively, they're almost sketches. They're a little longer than a sketch, but they are almost sketches, which is why you've got to wear, you know, you've got to have your dumb little mustache and a hat. So people kind of know who you are immediately. Like there's got to be instant recognizability in some aspect of you. Uh, it may not become a famous character, but it's got to be something instantly recognizable as a person or an aspect of a personality. And you're like, oh, I've seen somebody who does this. Now I'm going to see it 10 times within this this scape of three minutes. Yeah. And one could argue like a Buster Keaton film is just a series of sketches kind of yeah. strung together, you know, getting yeah. through different situations. Yeah. So, you know, it's it really it all applies. Um, so this book is basically how the 1990s were such a great time for sketch comedy. Would you mind elaborating on that here and maybe sharing some of the context around the way sketch comedy was able to really flourish in that time and why? Absolutely. I did not originally know, to be fair. I'm like, I knew I was going to dig in because I, I knew I liked it and I knew why I like to do it. I knew that sketch comedy usually looks cheap and that's what makes people like me want to do it because it's like, oh, cool. I could absolutely do this myself at home. Uh, that's not exactly true, but that's how you feel. Um, I think the reason that other than the fact that sketch has always been the cheapest form of TV to make up until reality TV became a thing in the 90s, I think it's the 90s is the perfect confluence of events in that all the people who grew up watching Monty Python were now getting TV deals. We're now doing theater. We're now doing sketch and TV this only 1990 is only 15 years into the life of SNL and this is 
people were still trying to compete with that. People still are. They want to be the new SNL. Mad TV almost sort of succeeded-ish, like they competed for a while. Um, so 15 years in, the experiments just started, but it's also solidified. And I think people are like, well, the networks, for the sake of the money, they want to they want to make their shows. The artists had been watching a ton of Python, and so they grew up thinking that sketch is a certain way, that sketch is kind of a part of life. And because of that, for me anyway, the 1990s then solidified sketches. Just that's a thing that needs to continue to exist and cannot go away. It must not go away. And I think Python is the reason for that. And SCTV. I, I always leave out SCTV, which is not fair. SCTV was also massive. Um, but Python is the thing that like all us little nerds clung to. Well, and that's kind of, I think the 90s were when SNL kind of reawakened because there was a... After Eddie Murphy leaves the show, there's kind of like this awkward period where mm -hmm. it's not really thriving. So the 90s SNL kicks back up. But then we get all these other different kinds of sketch comedy that you write about in your book. Um, when you were researching the different kind of eras of the history of sketch comedy, did you stumble across anything that really surprised you? Because you're an expert on this. Was there anything that you were like, oh, wow, I had no idea that affected the landscape of, of sketch comedy? I, like most people, have the same kind of rough landmarks. Like, I know that Carol Burnett's important and roughly why. I know that the Smothers Brothers is important and roughly why, because they actually, they're one of the few shows to have ever experienced real censorship, like literally from the president down, the president of the country down. Um, so I know why they're important, uh, but all of the little bits and pieces as to the making of the show, that's the stuff that ended up surprising me the most. Like I interviewed at least one person from every important show ever. And I, I think, except for, well, not Monty Python, but they are not really relevant to the book it, in terms of, uh, you know, it's North American. This is North American TV sketch for the most part. Um, the stuff that surprised me most was just the small stuff, just like the stuff that has continued and does not go away, like the types of fights with censors. Like I interviewed uh, the head writer of the Smothers Brothers, and he had some very similar stories to um, what the head writer of House of Buggin, which is a show maybe people listening have never heard of, uh, had like very similar sort of fights with how this the weird veil that's over the eyes of, of these censors and how kind of, for lack of a better word, dumb they are and don't understand comedy. Um, I was just more surprised to see like that things literally just don't change. And the fact that sketch comedy throughout history has cost almost an episode of sketch comedy to produce with inflation has cost roughly the same forever. It's wow. always cost that amount. The first episode of the Admiral Broadway review was about 15. I want to say 15,000, which works out to like 300 some thousand and an average sketch comedy show for the most part is 250 to like 400 some thousand and it's just always been that way which said to me this is cheap this is why they kept making sketch it made the most sense so i mean you mentioned you interviewed i think around 150 people for this book exactly 150 which is very oh, weird i love that no that's that's perfect <laughs> confluence what were some of your favorite stories or interviews from that time like that you might want to share with us uh my why did this one keep sticking with me i don't know uh, but I love Adam McKay, and I did not expect to get a yes. I also didn't expect him to tell his manager as we're on the line, you know what, let, let's do a little longer than I anticipated. So I think I got, you know, like 45 or an hour instead of the half hour he had originally agreed to. But I I had this method of interviewing in the book where um, a friend of mine, thank God for Brooke, gave me access to uh, a research website with newspapers on it. People can guess the name of it. Uh, I used it. 
and I would just dig what's the oldest mention of this person that I can confirm is absolutely this person. And I went back and the earliest thing, the most interesting thing, early thing of Adam McKay's I could find was that he was Morris Cat's campaign manager for a nine lives campaign. And he was running for president. And when I asked him that, that opened the entire interview up. And I think is the reason he stuck around for longer. But the fact that this Morris the Cat thing had an actual effect on the rest of his career and it involved Matt Besser and the Upright Citizens Brigade and all these other things, like the fact that Morris the Cat was somehow this impetus for change and without Morris the Cat, you would not today have succession is fascinating to me. And the whole interview was great. He's the nicest millionaire I've ever spoken to. Um, and I think it's because he knows how to use his money. He actually does. I, I think he's one of those people who doesn't believe billionaires should exist. And he's using his millions to actually try to affect change. So I respect him. Well, and you can see that in his films. I mean, don't yes. look up the big short. Yeah. The, you know, he's mm-hmm. trying to affect social change with those films. Yeah. And doing it with comedy, which is hard. And like maybe some people look at that as pretentious. I for me, like I grew up on In Living Color. And then when I finally saw Blazing Saddles, I was like, oh, oh, God, comedy actually has a purpose. Like, it's not just make me laugh. It can actually have like it can have another there's there are more avenues you can explore with comedy. Some people, again, professional comedians sometimes think that's pretentious. The laugh is the thing. Yeah, it absolutely is. But you can do more than just a laugh with it. And um, I had to make this book without without preaching, despite the fact that it does look like a Bible on purpose. <laughs> Another thing that's great about your book is you break it up uh, chapter by chapter with kind of the different sketch shows and what made them great. Um, and I loved reading about the In Living Color portion of your book and mm-hmm. how that show really created a path for Black sketch comedy performers. Can you speak a little bit about the significance of that show and the roadblocks it faced regarding the white executives at Fox? That was the big thing is like I, I've talked about this and 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 I, I try and get a handle on it. Um, it's it's hard to because there is the cynical side and there and uh, of of why uh, any shows of color ever got made, which is. We need more black audience. Uh, finally, finally, we care about black people and, they, and they'll spend money. So you know what? Let's make a black show like that is very much how executives look at it. The other end of it is great. A bunch of minority performers are getting a shot to make a show. And the fact that they use it to make a difference is is massive. The The white execs, my favorite example of this is I interviewed Rob Edwards, who wrote on the, the show for the first season then went on to do some like amazing, like if you look up the man's IMDb, it's mostly like crazy, cool, animated shit that like millennials love, uh, like very well known in that scene. But um, he was talking about being there for the shooting of the pilot of In Living Color, this 90 minute shoot that they cut down into a, an, a half hour pilot. Originally, I think it was supposed to be an hour, if I'm not mistaken. You're right. It was you wrote that it was supposed to be an hour, but that the executives got scared and they cut it down to a half hour. Yeah. Yeah. And he talked about in in the middle of this as they're recording the the audience is so excited like he's like no exaggeration people were getting up like they were in the aisles they were running around they were they were stamping their feet like this was this was more a revival like a church revival than it was a comedy performance at least as what my white ass would be used to seeing and understanding as a comedy performance this is how they reacted this is how this is what it meant to them and the execs the very white execs are like, how much did you pay these people to to do this? And he's like, you can't, you can't pay people to react from their gut. That is not possible. This is just very real that you, and you know, they had a firecracker on their hands and like, they just didn't know what to do with it. They didn't realize that this was, this was going to actually like be a thing. And it was, it ended up being so hugely important, especially for a show that only ran 
four years and five seasons. It's it's insane to me. Um, but it's it's one of those shows where like they didn't know they didn't realize what they had done and were afraid of it rather than being excited about it, which is exactly what they should have been. They should have been like, no show's ever been reacted to this much. This thing could be huge. And it should have been. It should still be going. It should still it be could going. have still been going. There's no reason for it not to be. That's why other shows have had to sort of take its place or take up the mantle a bit like Black Lady Sketch Show, which should not have been canceled. I'm very pissed about that show being canceled. It's bullshit. Um, well, and Key and Peele. Oh, God, I love that show so much. It's a great Key show. and Peele is maybe the perfect sketch show. And it's, yeah. Well, and I was surprised to learn about the NAACP not being in support of In Living Color. That really surprised me. Yeah, I, I there's, I mean, there's a fine line to walk. Like, you know, I, I love In Living Color and rewatching it. I had, did not realize it. A lot of it was still in my brain. I still had a, a lot of the sketches like word for word in there. Like it would come, I would know the next word that was coming and I didn't remember that I had that. Um, it's still super hit and miss, but the really powerful stuff is still very powerful. And I, I would, I cannot speak for anybody from the NAACP, but the show was playing with stereotypes a lot, but they were doing it to a purpose. They were playing with the stereotypes for the most part to either examine the stereotypes, tear yeah. apart the stereotypes. But I think if you're part of a group whose sole mission is to elevate the image of the African-American, you're like, why do we want to play with these stereotypes? Can't you do this in a different way is what I would imagine. Again, I'm not speaking for anybody from the NAACP, but I can understand being afraid. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned, too, that they were a little bit older. They appreciated being asked for their opinion. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comedy is generational, too. That's the other thing. It's like the the, like the I don't understand TikTok, but I'm fine with it existing. If you were to interview me today about should this TikTok person be on TV, I'd be like, maybe. How many followers do they have? That's what you're going to go off of anyway. Probably. I don't get it because I'm old. But, you know, like it's just that is always the comedy is so generational. It's hard. It's hard. I say that and I do love a lot of TikTok people. There are some very funny people on there. So you mentioned generational comedy. Saturday Night Live is probably the most famous sketch show of all time. And it's been on forever, almost 50 years at this point. Why do you think that show, that sketch show remains so successful? Uh, like, what's the formula? Why Why is it still around? It's such a complicated question. I was I was never tempted to not write about it, but I was less excited to write about it in the book because, as I say, it's been written about a billion times, and I didn't think there's anything new I could write about it. Turns out, because the approach I took worked, and I was interviewing people about their own experiences, you find stories by interviewing people who've never been interviewed before that you're just going to get. I don't think there is a formula so much as I think there is a dependence on it. I think it's it is just dependable. And it is now like there was once a concept of appointment TV, and that was like you show up to watch a thing, not live usually, but like in the 60s, they started saying appointment TV was, you know, the show's going to be on primetime. So you you got to be home. You can't you can't be out playing ball. You got to come home, watch the show. That is the thing that doesn't exist anymore with a few exceptions. And that is the one live show that isn't the news. And I, I think they've just ridden this wave so successfully. And honestly, I think part of their success is much as Lauren Michaels reputation has has various things attached to it. Um, he's he's pushy and picky and gets his way. And he must have some little there must be some little magic thing where he does actually understand what works. And I, I think one of the reasons is continues to succeed for the last 20 years is that he's finally let people in who aren't just white dudes. And that's that's yeah. a bonus. Um, so he so he has sort of ridden cultural waves, if a little bit slowly. Um, like it took them a while to embrace the internet, but once they did, holy shit, it was huge. You know, like 
I don't know. It, it, it's willingness to change while slow must be part of the reason for its success beyond again. It's just dependable. It's just there. We can count on it being there and probably will until the death of television. It is an institution, but because it hasn't, you know, traditionally employed a diverse cast or diverse writers, like, do you think that will ultimately tarnish its legacy? Or sure. No? I yeah. mean, I, I mean, I, th I think it will tarnish it as much as anything else that started in the seventies. Yeah. The fact that it that it evolved, people will, I, I would imagine, take into account. I just don't think you should ever forget that the fact that it was the whitest show on TV, just like everything was for the most part. Do you have a favorite SNL sketch? Um, so I sent you a list and like uh, the one that was top of mind at the time, just because I had seen it, but I do remember it being one of the funniest fucking things I'd ever seen. And it's funny because I will say, like, I always tell people my favorite SNL guy is Phil Hartman, hands down. But this is a Dana Carvey sketch, even though Phil Hartman is great in it. He's just reacting in it. The I don't even know if there's a name to the sketch, but everybody knows it is chopping broccoli. And it's just and I think that's Dana Carvey's first episode or some shit. Like it's it's so early into his run and he's just I don't I don't even know. Like it's there's this pure joy in making these stupid faces that are not at all realistic. As I said earlier, elevated, right? Elevated can be way too much or it can be this weird artful melange of like this is a thing I recognize, but he's also upped it like Dana Carvey has always had in his stand-up like this thing where he talks about like this is the face guitarists make when they're playing a chord and they'll stare you in the eyes and like he was kind of doing the piano version of that just like how a pianist just eats up like every moment and uh it's brilliant you don't know, need to know a pianist to get it it just somehow translates and I don't know why but it's it's weirdly beautiful and it's a moment that could absolutely you could see like the real version of that like, this is the joke version. This is silly. But for people at home, basically what that sketch is, I also love this sketch. I, I so remember it from growing up because mm -hmm. um, we were lucky. I feel like we were lucky enough that Comedy Central would replay old SNL episodes. So that's how I got into Conan O'Brien and SNL in the first place. Not because I watched them live, but because when I was growing up, they'd show them after school on Comedy Central. Yeah. Um, but anyway, this sketch that we're talking about, Dana Carvey plays a musician who is clearly like, he's trying to get sober maybe. He's had some rough, yeah. Uh, yeah. rough things happen that have kind of derailed his career. And he's meeting with executives about his new demo, but he didn't write a demo. He, he just didn't do it. So he's going to make up the songs on the the spot and it's just the song he makes up is about a woman chopping broccoli and it's just like it's great it's really funny but you mm -hmm. can see that real version of someone being unprepared walking into a room being like i wrote this hit song are you ready <laughs> they just did it in the movie theater camp the movie just came out and the same oh, really? thing okay, happens <laughs> yeah where the, the person's like girl drinking snapple like she just makes up a musical theater song about what she's seeing in the room and it's very funny yeah but yeah it's still funny it holds up it's timeless um for me <laughs> I was thinking about what my favorite SNL sketches are and my top two. I love the Judy Miller show with Gilda Radner. Sure. It's just so pure and sweet and a little girl playing in her room and there's no purpose. Like there's no agenda. It's just like a very sweet performer driven sketch. But then I also love the Chip and Dale's dancer sketch with Patrick Swayze and Chris Farley. Yeah. I just will always love it. It never gets old to me. It makes me smile and it's great. So everybody at home, I guess, maybe check out those sketches. Yeah. Um, so I guess how much crossover was there in the sketch comedy world? Like Bob Odenkirk's name comes up a lot in the book. He's involved in SNL, Mr. Show. He wrote with Conan, who also wrote on SNL. The Groundlings yeah. are around. Other improv groups feed into all these sketch shows. 
How much overlap and collaboration did you find in your interview subjects? You know, Bob Odenkirk also wrote briefly for Dana Carvey, uh, I think by fax. Uh, and he he wrote a, a single sketch for the Jenny McCarthy sketch show. And I had asked Brian Posehn about it because they co-wrote it. And he didn't remember much about it. And I, I didn't bother asking Bob about it because I, I just wanted to make sure I had Bob. You know, my good friend, Bob. Sorry, I hate I don't like shortening <laughs> stuff like that if I don't know the person. Uh, but... He wrote for five to six sketch shows, or is at least credited on five to six sketch shows. And that is, I think, probably more common than even I discovered. I'm sure there are people who wrote on stuff that are uncredited or just like were just there for a brief period. The one that surprised me the most was I was talking to Blaine Kapach, who wrote, who was Pat Oswalt's writing partner, partner at the time. They started on Mad TV early on, and he was just tossing off a story and I didn't think to question it as he told me he's like yeah David Cross said this and this and this and made some really funny observations and eventually got fired off of mad tv and I'm like he's not credited on mad tv and I had to look it up and he's he used a he used a pseudonym there's this whole thing it's never been uh brought up until the book which is it's nice there's a couple little things like that in the book uh but I was really shocked to find out that David Cross had a few moments on like the pedestrian version of us of the kind of sketch that he would write like he sketch shows that he was writing he obviously wanted to do like these deep cut like really hard like meta like very um distressing sometimes sketches and he clearly didn't fit but he was there for a week or two maybe or just a few days at mad tv um so yeah the people who went in and out of of all these sketch shows kind of shocked me i'm sure there are more um I interviewed somebody, uh, Jim Wise, who was not, he was a sketch writer, but he, he got it like a two week, you can get a two week sort of thing on SNL, like every once in a while, all writers are offered a two week, just like you get to work on SNL for two weeks. And it's a, it's a good thing on your resume. But he during his two weeks was there in the room when Norm Macdonald got fired, not there are only four people in the room when that happened. But David Cross is still the most surprising. Like the idea that he worked on Mad TV doesn't make sense at all to me. Although at the end of the day, I mean, David Cross was in She's the Man and he was fantastic in it. So he can do commercial fare. Oh, yeah. I mean, he likes getting paid. That is another thing. That is another obvious thing. He very much likes getting paid. Uh, Don't insult the Chipmunks movies to his face because he's like, I don't care. Look at my house. Like he's very much he's very clear about what pays his bills and then what is his art form. Although I think he's different. It's interesting. Uh, him and Bob Odenkirk are very different in that sense because I think Bob, uh, David Cross's true art form is probably stand up because he does it the most and he does it a lot. Whereas Bob Odenkirk, I was sort of suspected and then revealed as we talked was like, no, sketch is absolutely the truest thing in the world to him. And we probably could have had a three hour conversation, except he has a schedule to keep and I don't. He just has a couple things on the on the back. Yeah, no biggie. No big deal. I, th- I think Better Call Saul had just ended when we talked and stuff. So. Um, so sticking with SNL, but kind of venturing out a little bit. Wayne's World, that your title, the title of your book, We're Not Worthy, that comes from Wayne's World, as all, you know, 90s kids know. Um, so Wayne's World was an SNL sketch that became this huge hit movie. How do you think that sketch was able to bridge the gap from television to film so successfully? And what do you think they were able to tap into that, like, made it such a hit? That is something that I tried to figure out while writing the book. And I, maybe maybe I got there. This those characters are like sort of fully formed within a few sketches. If you watch them on the show, um, the first sketch is honestly not good. The first Wayne's World sketch is I don't like it at all. And those characters don't they're meaner. It's a little it's not exactly what you want. 
Um, they somehow managed to condense what it was about those characters, which was, I think, honestly, looks, catchphrases, uh, general attitudes, and then they just imbued them with the sort of truth of uh, Mike Myers growing up in in Scarborough, uh, Ontario, because it was... I think that's what gave it the heart. I think that's what made it a successful leap. I think, honestly, the reason people were willing to watch them in a movie is by that point, people were just quoting it. It was just this, it, 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 and it was impulsive and compulsive. I don't think there was much about the characters to relate to. I don't think they're that relatable, except they're a couple dumb teenagers, a couple dumb teenage idiots who are trying to make TV. And I mean, I relate to that because I wanted to make sketches and stuff, right? So like that, that appealed to me. But beyond that, did I, did we know anything about their like backstories? Not really. That stuff wasn't there. Did they have any like heart to them? Not really. Did they feel like they could carry a film? Not to me, but it still, it is the most successful SNL film. It is my favorite SNL film. And I think it's, they just, they managed to find a way to turn these kind of surface characters into something just, just enough to carry uh, a kind of heartfelt story. It's weird. I, I, it's, I, and I, I don't know what they did. I think it's mostly from Mike Myers growing up. I think that that's got to do with it yeah. a lot. The quote that I loved was it was no money fun. So it was like exploring that concept of like, how can you have fun with no money? Here it is. Yep. And then uh, like, I think his brother, Paul gave them the head banging thing. It was like observing his family and then they got a great director. The Mirthmobile was real. I'm just saying, like, these are all very real things that were just put into it. And that's stuff that was not into the sketch. But yes, you're right. Penelope Spheris is a goddess. The woman, she can do no wrong in my book. Like, she has the temerity. She has the guts to to just be like, no, I taught Albert Brooks how to make movies. I taught him how to make films. And you know what? Good, good. You That needs to be on, on paper. That needs to be in print. That's a good thing. Uh, but she mostly did documentaries, like, but music documentaries. And I think somebody had this weird idea where it's like, okay, she, she has done comedy, but she also knows music really well, even though this is, and it's sort of a mockumentary. It's got elements of that. It's an elements of a mockumentary, but it's not. Tia Carrera, the casting of her, her Penelope really fighting for her casting yes. because she's a real musician, you know, mm -hmm. that's great. And I love that it has a female director. I just think like, yes, this is fabulous. It absolutely is. And it's it's this sort of like if 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 you're still running into those chodes who think women can't be funny or women can't do this or can't do that, it's like, okay, you name me some of your favorite films. This is a like a bro-y film. Like a lot of like dudes like this movie. I'm certain of it. You know, it's it's like, okay, well then just to let you know then a woman has has then formed who you are as a person you just need an which by the way has happened a lot but if you're one of those people who forms their entire personality off of pop culture <clears throat> me then you have to admit that that has been very heavily influenced by several women who you just didn't realize were there and who might have even been there behind the scenes but weren't even credited of course oh of fucking course absolutely uh. all the damn time all the time I love that you talked about Conan O'Brien. I mean, I I was a huge late night with Conan O'Brien fan. Yeah. And people at home, listeners, if you know where I can purchase the My Pretty Coney t-shirt, I don't know <laughs> if they make it anymore. I wish I had purchased it in 2003, but I did not. If you know where it is, let me know. Um, but I love the way you captured the show in the book and how it was so experimental and how it blended sketch comedy with the talk show format in this really cool new way. What do you think made that show unique from what other talk shows were doing? And like, what did it bring to the genre of television? I I think it's separate from Letterman, but similar. Letterman gave late night and TV permission to be 
surreal from the second they say action because I don't think there's an I don't think there's a second of sincerity coming out of David Letterman really on too many of his episodes. Everything was an experiment. Every bit was a, was a bit like every interview was a bit. That's why he didn't mind people coming around fucking with him. And then he or people coming around who took themselves too seriously that he then did not give two shits about the interview and just laughed at them. Like that laugh was not ha ha. I found what you just said funny. It's very much ha ha. What a dumb thing we're doing right here. This is so stupid. And Conan, while I think he's genuinely a good interviewer. Um, I think the same aesthetic is there, but the sketches are <clears throat> more obviously sketches. They are not trying to integrate into the world in the same way. This when he tr- when he introduces a character, it's like, hey, we've just entered Bit Town. We've just entered Sketch World. This is going to be stupid. You know it. You're going to be somewhat disappointed, mostly at how much you laugh. And that is that's the presentation of the world. It is pure vaudeville. It is the kind of thing that keeps vaudeville alive. And I appreciate that he still sort of does that here and there. I don't I don't give a shit if he wants to just interview people on his podcast. That's fine. I prefer Conan in a world where there's characters around him like PimpBot5000, who's on the cover of the book. Um, one of the dumbest characters in the history of TV. Oh, Frankenstein wastes a minute of your time is still I'm like, that was great. <laughs> it's just Frankenstein wasting a minute of your time. Yeah. You know, the bits like that are just yeah. <laughs> and they didn't always hit. And you mentioned this in the book. That was part of the the joy when they didn't work. Yep. <laughs> and Conan yep. being like, that was terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like um and i think you're right it's like the weirdness but there's heart behind it yeah and i mean a a quote that you that you had written in the book was it it was always working towards the best joke and conan understood that he was taking risks and he wanted you all to be there for the ride i didn't credit people with those quotes so i'm just saying they're in your book he made me want to keep doing comedy in a way that like when anybody's interviewed me or asked me like what's your favorite sketch show i always say the state and that's absolutely true and it's partially because i want to make sure that people know that i do very much appreciate that david wayne wrote the forward on this damn thing but conan is the thing that kept me going for sure even though i absolutely hated the show the first couple seasons because i was like 13 and 14 and i did not get it this is dumb he's trying to replace dave i don't understand it and then one night magically when i'm 16 i turn it on again and i i have the i am to this saved i think i was like uh, to my buddy dan i'm like you should watch conan it's actually pretty good and it was like he's like come on and like but at that point we fell in love went and saw andy's second to last show live like it was a very important show to me and still is um, and that, and I was glad when Matt Bester was like, yeah, I'm glad you're including this because it is part of the history of sketch because it is the show is so sketch heavy and they're obviously sketches. They're called sketches out loud. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not, it's not a late night. It's not a tip. It's not a talk show. I don't think there's talk elements, but it's a sketch show with talk yeah. stuff in it. Well, the reason I think we all watched it was for the sketches. That was for 100%. his monologue in the beginning where he would yeah. do the sketch and like the sketch after. Like, I, I love that show. I feel like, um, I found it in its sweet spot when it was uh they started showing it on comedy central at 7 p.m they called it retirement conan or something like conan for the retired set (laughs) but that's when i first got into it because i was in high school i could not stay up till 12 37 on a school night Mm -hmm. but i could watch conan at seven while i was like eating dinner Mm -hmm. so that was when i first fell in love with him and just such an unusual the what in the world like all the sketches (laughs) Mm -hmm. were so weird and so funny okay so we've talked about conan a lot i'm sorry but that's because that was like my personal one of my favorite sections in the whole book yeah i got to interview so many fucking people who like influenced me including i will just mention this i try and mention this every time brian stack who is the nicest person Mm. in the history of entertainment i know tom hanks has that reputation brian stack wins um and (laughs) just sitting down with him and talking to him 
I'm very lucky, yeah. honestly. Everyone at home, he was a writer for Conan. Yes. He was the, the and oh, what did they call it? The, he, the interrupter. The he interrupter, was the interrupter. Yes. That's what yes. it was. And oh, man, the, I remember that. The dead crooner, which everything he sang was <laughs> upsetting and racist or sexist or He was the ghost that haunted the studio that was a crooner <laughs> from the old days. Yeah, it was, oh, man, I miss that show. <laughs> Me too. Well, okay. And just people at home, shout out. If you want to watch my favorite Conan's, it, well, I guess it wasn't a sketch, but it's when Conan used to go on location and he went to the car show with his 92 Taurus. And then when Conan said that was his own favorite sketch, I was like, we're the same Conan. We love the same things. I think anyway. he still owns that car. I think he might. I don't think he drives it, but I think he still owns it, if I remember correctly. I remember watching that one live. Like, I remember seeing it as it aired and thinking it was so funny. Honestly, that's something I didn't cover enough in this. Honestly, usually the on on the, the on the on the street stuff is usually my favorite stuff. Much oh, as I yeah. loved all the sketches in in there, but I really he just shines. Yeah, because it was that one, and then the old timey baseball one, and then those end up being his two favorites. But I remember I watching both of those live and being like, that was hilarious, Conan. Yeah. You did perfect. great. They are perfect. They're perfect. Okay, so we're gonna move on from Conan. I'm sorry. So so you mentioned the state earlier. The state, I feel like, is so embedded in comedy today, like the actors that yeah. were part of that group. Uh, you you write about the state being the first major sketch show to start in the 90s that came from an existent core group rather than a group being assembled for a TV show. They were kind of the opposite of SNL and presentation. How would you describe what they brought to the landscape of sketch comedy in the 90s? They sort of exemplify the whole being raised on Python thing. They exemplify that because they are absurd. They are playing with the form. They, from the get-go, it is a perfect pilot. It's really hard to find the pilot with the original music. I will say that. Uh, mm. But if you go to archive.org, somebody has reassembled it. Uh, so you can find it there, I think. Um, it's a perfect pilot, which never happens with TV shows. Even my favorite shows don't have perfect pilots. But, I mean, it's ju just playing with the very idea of the form. They had two different directors. And uh, it was David Wayne directed, uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, most of the on location stuff. And then Michael Patrick Jan directed all the in studio stuff. Um, and it's just the absurdism of Python mixed with this, whatever the 90s aesthetic was. And they helped invent the MTV aesthetic for to to a certain degree. The sort of fisheye canted angle thing was not really an MTV thing until the state was doing it. They invented the look of the 90s while also reinventing sketch. And um, because of that, and because of their willingness to be like really hard, they're genuinely like really known, I think, as hard workers. Uh, David Wayne in this says like, I have for good and bad become known as somebody who can get stuff done quick and under budget uh, because of that show. But because of that, he's continued to work and influenced all of comedy really for the last 20 years, 30 years now. And to clarify for like the listeners at home, what Jason is talking about is like how they couldn't, uh, the reason you can't find this full pilot in its originality, in its original state, is because it was an MTV creative pilot and they were using music that MTV had access to that they no longer have the rights to. So it's really hard to access this like full with the music, how it was intended version. It's the same with the original Ben Stiller show and my favorite, one of my favorites, which I don't even talk about in the book because I it just complicated Syphil and Ollie, which was a puppet show. Also, just they had the rights. They were on MTV. MTV had universal rights except for dvd which didn't exist yet except for streaming which didn't exist yet so we're boned in terms of getting that the way we want it and then also the state i mean they wouldn't necessarily they went on to do wet hot american summer not necessarily as the state it was like a lot right. of the people that were in the state made wet hot american summer which is just like such a wonderful comedy film that i cannot uh -huh. believe was not a hit at the time i know um 
Also, I sat behind David Wayne. At, they did the Nuba viewing a couple months ago, and I sat right behind him. It didn't. Ha- I didn't do it on purpose. I just was like, "Oh my god, I'm that's David Wayne, and I'm behind him and Ken Marino watching this movie that they made." Cool. Oh, that's cool. So good. I love it. I do a little wrangling, but because of my old podcast, I had somebody send me this, so I haven't quote unquote unboxed it yet. But there is a vinyl soundtrack to the damn thing. That's. Awesome. What's on the soundtrack? What's on the vinyl soundtrack? Uh, I think it's possibly the actual background score. It's only 45 minutes of it. But then there's, let's see, the Wet Hot American Summer theme, Day by Day, which they all sing as a cast. <laughs> uh, day by day. <laughs> they're so, yeah. So they're, they're, but everything else I think looks like it's probably instrumental stuff. I haven't listened to it yet. So I'm excited to hear whatever the hell is actually on this. But, um, yeah, it's a handsome looking record. Anyway, it looks beautiful. That's a great record. So this is just about the form of sketch comedy in general. What do you think allows a sketch to hold up over time? Like, what do you think that formula is? Here's what seems like a hard and fast rule and everybody thinks it is. And I usually assume it is too. It can't be referencing what's happening today because that makes it not timeless, right? So somebody makes a sketch about Reagan 40 years ago, comes out today, if I'm 20, I don't care or know much about who Reagan is beyond what I may have learned in a history class, but there's no emotional resonance. So that part of it is not going to be there, but I don't want to say that specificity doesn't work. Like I think specificity has to be emotional specificity and you have to luck out to have picked something that is going to continue to be emotional for people, continue to have resonance to people. That's hard. You're not going to know what that is, um, especially if like if you're doing a sketch that even tries to explore the emotionality of um, go back 40 years and watch uh, certain sketches that are exploring racism, sexism, homophobia, xenophobia, even if they are trying to explore it the way we talk about it now is changed so much that you might instinctively just like cringe or be like, I don't want to watch this. It's a, it's offensive. I do that sometimes. I will say that I absolutely get that way, but I do try and watch stuff with a historical lens if at all possible. Um, But yeah, I, I guess what I'm saying is you have to find some sort of emotional truth, which is weird because a lot of these shows, especially the ones in this book, the nineties, these are written by cynical Gen Xers who, who love nothing more than irony and sarcasm and not and the, just no sincerity, please. Thank you very much. It very rarely comes up. Um, so where's the emotional resonance in there? I don't know if it's emotional so much as it is human experience. And then, you know, again, it's always twisted into something else. It's so hard. I, some sort of weird universality has to be in there to what you think the human experience is. But then that's the other thing is the other thing that makes it universal is what if your point of view is just so strong and smart and interesting like Python writes about stuff that nobody gives a shit about. Uh, now, do I know who half of the people they reference are? Uh, no, I absolutely don't. But the specific method in which they tell these stories or which they try and examine these things for the most part still holds up because it's weird. It makes me want to keep watching. So, you know, I guess it's just a, a mix of POV and and universality. And it might just be one. It might just be the other. But when it's both, ooh, that's the, like the sweet spot, yeah. you know? I think you're right. It's like the human experience because you were mentioning, oh, political doesn't always hold up. And I was trying to think of like in my brain, the two examples I thought of 
um, that are, I think are political based humor that still do hold up because they're mm-hmm. kind of rooted in something else where the SNL sketch when Amy Poehler and Tina Fey are playing Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin coming together after um, Barack Obama has been, you know, announced as the candidate that will mm-hmm. be going forward. And they're kind of like the whole purpose is to come together to say, please stop saying mean things about women. And it's so clearly a sketch about like someone who was qualified for a job and someone who is not qualified for a job. And so I think because that's under it, you don't need to know anything that's going on. It's fair. It's so clear, you know, and, and same with um, Melissa McCarthy doing the Sean Spicer stuff. That's just someone who's really bad at their job. And it's yep. so fun to watch. 100%. So it's like you don't need to know the the politics of what was happening in the moment. But yeah, I think you're totally right. It's when when things can go beyond that. And there's some sort of like universal human experience that we could all yeah. tap into totally and then then again if you're a fucking nerd like me and you're watching old wb cartoons you're like that is a solid peter laurie impression yeah i i also like to dig way too hard and try and put myself in the brain of like why was this funny to somebody in the 1920s i will try it's pretentious but i will try and it is nice to learn the references too yeah Every now and then you'll be like i didn't know that reference before and now i get it and the joke does work now that i know it so it's, it's you know I don't like to dismiss stuff just because it's old, just as much as I don't like to worship anything just because it's from my childhood. You know, it's like there's there's a balance. What do you think that sketch comedy of the 90s has influenced today? Like, what do we have now because of the history of 90s sketch comedy? I won't totally credit sketch comedy with this, but the diversity in TV uh, is at least partially uh, you you can give some credit to the I, I don't want to say give credit to the decade. You should give credit to the actual like people of color and 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 women who finally got their voices and did something with it. Um, I do think the diversity has helped, and that's what sort of what I argue with the book. But I also like it gave us I don't know. I I think it is just still variety of perspective. I do think so many of these people became huge stars in their own rights or have worked on every show that you love. Of these 150 people, I couldn't I couldn't tell you how many thousands of shows that probably adds up to that they've actually worked on, but they have changed it in terms of the sort of gentle, slow way that people change things, which is just like my perspective adds a little piece and slowly but surely culture catches up. I don't think that answers your question. I'm trying to think in terms, it has changed sketch. It has absolutely changed sketch. There's no doubt about it. Um, I talked, Originally, my theory about this, about 90 sketch was it's DIY and it's this and that. And I was like, I feel like I might have pulled that out of my butt. But as I started interviewing these people, it became clear that it was actually true and that I should trust my gut a little more. And the no money fun thing was absolutely the crux where I'm like, oh, Mike Myers said it like Mike Myers can be a little problematic. He's had things going on, like in terms of like supposedly stealing sketches and stuff and characters. But but hearing it from somebody who influenced me so heavily as a kid was like, okay, so maybe that is, there is that. And I think that DIY ethic has carried through because the internet gave us uh, a lot of publishing platforms and people were like, oh, well, I, I can, I can just do this. It's not just, I have the place to put the stuff. It's that any of my ideas might be worth it, even if I do them cheaply. And I think anything that influences people to express themselves is probably a positive. We mentioned earlier Key and Peel shows like that. Um, I mean, Inside Amy Schumer, Broad City, Black Lady Sketch Show are able to thrive because of kind of what came before. Those voices were not really necessarily heard before. And now yeah. we have these really great sketch comedy shows that are all kind of around because of what came before. Mm-hmm. What are some of your favorite like deep cut sketches that our mm-hmm. listeners should check out? 
I will say the fact that you talked this much about Conan shows that you actually do have plenty of deep cut knowledge because the, he was he was not Conan Conan until like 98, 99, 2000. That's when all of a sudden people were were catching on. And I was like, fuck you. I've been there for, since the beginning. Not true. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. I was not there from the beginning, but I like to pretend I was. Um, I learned about some deep cut stuff that I had never heard of before that is now some of my favorite stuff. So uh, I would advise people, there's one show that doesn't get talked about that much. It was a Seattle show called Almost Live. You can find so much of their stuff on on YouTube. Some of it's not going to be up your alley. Some of it's absolutely not going to age well. But there's some stuff that's absolutely perfect. And the DIY aesthetic is there, like them doing this sketch called Alien Gumbies that makes no sense other than it's Gumby takes the place of the alien. Stuff from that show is really fun. And again, deep cut because you probably haven't seen it unless you lived in Seattle or watched Comedy Central for the two years when they replayed some of their sketches. Um, oh boy. What's like, what's the deepest, what's the deepest cut? There's probably some Conan stuff that I absolutely love. Like when Kilty McBagpipes would come up, like, I feel like naming conventions on Conan's show sort of influenced the way I think about character names. Like I, it was like, oh, that was funny. That was always funny. I'll name something blanky McBlank. And I feel like that show sort of invented that convention. I could be wrong. I'm looking at my own book just to see, because I'm sure there's something. Kids in the Hall are really well known, you know? There were so many. There were so many shows. And some of them I was embarrassed because I was like, I've heard of this, but I don't really sure. know. Like, Mr. Show, mm-hmm. I everyone has talked about it forever, and yeah. I haven't ever watched it. And I'll maybe sometimes nod my head and be like, oh, yes, classic, <laughs> yes. But I don't know. So like, I didn't see that show growing up either, though. I didn't see that show until the early 2000s or late 2000s, actually, because I did by that time I was making my own sketches and I was just like, I don't need more influences. Thank you. Also, I can't afford HBO. So thank you very much. Um, So, you know, I didn't see it until late. So but I understand the influence and I obviously know a ton of people who loved it. And and it's just so meta and it's sketches about sketches. And uh, like I could recommend the audition sketch from Mr. Show as like a perfect sketch but it's not that deep of a cut. It's a deep cut if you don't know Mr. Show, though. Watch the audition sketch. There's probably some good stuff on House of Buggin' right now off the top of my head. You can't find House of Buggin', so it's really hard to know, like, what is the best stuff there. Probably something on the state that, I will say this, as somebody who loves classic, if you haven't watched this, as somebody who loves classic films, watch Porcupine Racetrack and tell me you don't smile. Uh, Porcupine Racetrack, not a super deep cut, again, unless you don't know the state. It looks like a 40s musical. It's cast like a 40s musical. It's shot like a 40s musical, but it is about porcupines racing around a racetrack. It's the stupidest fucking thing on the planet. I think that is pure glee. It is just like unadulterated. And that's what comedy should be at its heart. It's just pure unadulterated glee. Add stuff on top of that if you want. But this is just glee. And uh, that's a good one. Again, maybe not a super deep cut, but it's a deep cut if you don't know the state. I want to go check it out. You had me at 40s musical and porcupines. Um, So, I mean, we're wrapping up here. Like what kind of takeaway do you hope that readers will leave with after reading your book? I think we've talked about everything I would think to talk about because you asked very good questions and the fact that you love Conan helps uh, a whole lot. Um, Not just in the interview, but my respect for you. I already had plenty of respect for you, but (laughs) I really, anybody who loves Conan gives me a little extra, like, okay, a little boost to serotonin. That's nice. Oh, Um, I understand. It was how, remember when they used to do like, tell us something about yourself, like in in college and stuff, that was kind of my like, and I love this television program. And so I knew we'd get along after they'd be like, 
I love Conan too. I was so antisocial. I wouldn't have done that, but I should have. I would have made friends in college. I didn't, you know? I was just like, I was, uh, here's an interesting thing about me. And it was something boring usually. Um, what I hope people take away from the book uh, is what I took away from the 90s, which is you, and it's weird to say this in an era where everybody can, and a lot of people do make their own sketch, but I, I think people should do it. I think if you, if you have the ability to, self-publish in any whatever you you want to look at that as do it you should understand that yes your point of view is worth it your point of view is valid and you should find a way to publish that if that's what you want you don't have to do that you can just put it keep it to yourself in a journal but if you're afraid that nobody's going to want to hear it that's bullshit that's absolute bullshit there's at least one person i know it doesn't sound worth the effort but there's at least one person out there who wants it and I, I, I'm so, I hate to use the word blessed, but blessed that I grew up at a time when I could see this stuff. And then the internet came about and told me that I was allowed to put that stuff out there. Whether anybody saw it or not, wasn't really the point. It's just to get it out there and uh, just to know it, it exists. And I don't know, I just, I think people should do sketch, but also I would like to see more people do traditional sketch, like make a sketch show, make a sketch pilot. If your TikToks are great, you've probably learned how to edit, act, you, you've learned camera presence. You've probably learned lighting. You've probably learned like new techniques and comedy that like none of us know. Turn that into a traditional sketch pilot and I will bet you will blow minds. But I would also add use your powers for good and not for evil. If you're like racist, please, for the love of God, don't make a sketch because we don't want to hear your bullshit. No, no, we don't need that. Go back, go back and learn something about yourself and the other people around you because you're not making good comedy. Uh, just because you saw somebody do something ironic and laughed at it for the wrong reasons does not mean you know what's going on. Think about it. That's the other thing. Think about your comedy. You don't have to think so hard that you stop doing it, but just think about why you're doing it, what you want to say. And whether you're being, this word wasn't used 20 years ago, but whether or not you're being inclusive, like just think about it. It doesn't take long. It really doesn't. Have I excluded somebody with this? Have I made some made fun of somebody for no reason who doesn't deserve it and who can't defend themselves at this very moment? That's it. You probably, you probably know something about the human condition that I've never thought to express and I would love to see it. Oh, this has been a lovely conversation. Jason, where can people find your book? How can they find you on the socials? Are there any other projects that you would like people to know about? Sure. Thank you. Um, you can find the book at Amazon, although indie bookstores are obviously, I get the same amount no matter where you buy it from. So support, a, support an indie bookstore. If they don't have it, they can order it. It's very easy for them to order it from the distributor and they can just order one copy. It's fine. They, they have no problem doing that. They love it because it makes them a little bit of money. Um, so you can get that, but there is more info at sketchcomedybook.com, including like the list of 150 interviewees. Uh, I think, yeah, I think every, most of them are on there. Uh, most of the 150 people, any names you might recognize, a few people who you've never heard of, which is kind of great. Um, and uh, I'm on Twitter. This is annoying. Uh, at J Klom, so J K L A M M. I'm on Instagram at Jason Klom, J A S O N K L A M M. And as far as other projects, I have a podcast called Dan and Jay's Comedy Hour, which is uh, where I talk about my sketches going back to 1993 with my best friend Dan. We've been doing sketch together for 30 years now. Uh, where we talk about a sketch we did and usually how bad it was, what lesson we learned and why we realized that we are not allowed to play with ironic racism when we were 13. We just, you know, it's, you're learning, you're learning. And we talk about the lessons that you learn. And also every once in a while, there's a funny sketch you wrote when you were 16 somehow. Um, so yeah, Dan and Jay's comedy hour, the podcast, and I was, I'm working on like five books that one of which should sell at some point would be nice. Uh, but that's, that's it. And thank you for having me. You're a delight. Oh, I love your show. I very much love your show. 
Well, thank you. No, it was so much fun having this conversation. I really, really enjoyed your book. So everybody at home, go find the book. It's called We're Not Worthy. You can get it at all the places Jason just said. And Jason Klom, thanks for being on the show. And we'll see you all next time on Talk Classic to Me. You have been listening to Talk Classic to Me with Sarah Greenfield. That's me. My guest this week was Jason Klom. They will be featured on our Instagram page. If you enjoyed our show, please introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and maybe even find us on Spotify for podcasters or anchor.fm because they are the same thing now to become a contributing member. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Talk Classic to Me for some awesome content and to find out what's coming up next. Thanks for listening. <laughs>